Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we're in the parables. We've been looking at the parables of Matthew 13 and what they say about the kingdom of heaven. And we've been talking about this because as we've been going through them, to me, it really appears that a lot of the things that... We, we know that Jesus told the parables because he wanted to make people think a little bit. And he needed to make them think a little bit because he wanted to challenge their preconceptions uh, about the kingdom of heaven, about what it was. And as we've been going through the lessons, it's really been, for me, amazing how often they are misconceptions that we also hold. And it's interesting that tonight is probably a very, very common parable, very familiar to a lot of you. And it really occurred to me as I was working through it that it might be entirely different than the way I've understood it before. <laughs> so talk about shaking some conceptions up. I'm not saying it has to be, but I want to share with you another possibility, particularly if you are familiar with it. One that I know is true. The question is, is it what Jesus then shared in this particular parable? And I think it might be. I want to show you why I think that. Before we do, let's pray. I think this is a message, not because of me at all, but because of who God is, because of how powerful and beautiful the message of God is. I truly think this is a message that could actually change lives. I think it has that power within it. Um, but as we talked about in the very first week, how we receive a message can have an impact on its power. And so let's take a moment to pray that God will just kind of get us all ready for whatever it is he has for us today. Maybe it's not what I think it is, but whatever it is, let's just pray that God will, will uh, prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, we do just ask you this evening, we just empty our cups before you. We, we think we know everything. We think we've heard it all. Some of us have been in church for a long time. Some of us haven't. But, but wherever we come from, we tend to think that we know what we know what we know. We're not always open to the, the new ideas and thoughts and just things that you want to grab our heart with. And so I pray tonight that we just be open to whatever's on your plate. Let my agenda, my understanding not even get in the way of that. Lord, we just pray that tonight it would be your heart that we would hear and see, it would be your revelation that would be apparent to us that we would, as we wrestle with this parable, that we would come to see that deeper truth, that it would take root deep within us, Lord, that it would change our lives and that it would produce fruit 60, 30, and 100 times. And these things pray or something. Amen. So what we're looking at is Matthew 13, 44 through 46. So... Uh, here's one thing to remember. So the, the beginning, actually, even, even before we get to the parables of 44 through 46, there's a, a verse we already read a few weeks ago because we were looking at an explanation, so we kind of skipped over some passages and came back. There's a verse that said, in Matthew 13, 36, it says, Then he left the crowd and went into the house. So what's happened, what we see is happening, is that Jesus has been standing in this boat. Remember, up until now, he's been preaching to a large crowd. He's been standing in a boat with a little bit of distance, and he's been preaching to this large crowd, giving, we can imagine, sort of large crowd parables. And now it makes a point of telling us that he left the crowd and went into the house. Now, why does he do this? How does he even do this? I mean, I don't, there's no indication the crowd was first. It, maybe it did. Maybe some time passed. More likely, it just seems like Jesus said, I'm done. I'm going to go over here now with my apostles. And he left the crowd and went into the house. And the first thing that happens when he gets in there is that's when the apostles take him and explain to us the parable of the weeds. 
And that's where he explains to them the parable of the weeds, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. But the second thing that happens is really interesting. He continues telling parables. And the fact that he continues telling parables to his apostles leads to a couple of questions that are really interesting. Why was he telling parables to the crowd? He was telling parables to the crowd because he knew there were things that would be hard for them to hear, hard for them to grasp. And so he wanted to not soften it, but he wanted to woo them. He wanted to bring them in and make them think. He wanted to provoke them so that they would come forward and they'd think, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, small and despised? What does that mean? Right? The kingdom of heaven is like weeds and wheat? What does that mean? He wanted to make them think. And so he's drawing them in. And that makes sense for the large crowd. But when the apostles asked him why he spoke in parables, he even said to them, to you I speak plainly. But now he's left the crowd. He goes into the house. He continues to talk in parables. And we can only assume it's for the same reason. That whatever Jesus is about to tell them, he thinks they might have a hard time hearing. He thinks they may not be as primed to get. He thinks they might be thinking so differently that to change the way they're thinking, he needs to come at it with a parable. He needs to provoke their thoughts in a new way. So that's interesting. What is it in these parables he's about to tell that is challenging enough or contrary enough to their expectations that it requires some extra thought on their part? The second question is, why say this parable to the apostles? Why didn't he tell this parable to the whole crowd? The one we're about to read. And again, we can only speculate, but perhaps what it tells us is that there were, there were some things he felt the crowd would be too far for them at this moment. What things he wants them to know, but first they have to accept that the kingdom of heaven is small. First they have to accept that everybody is wanted. First they have to accept that not everybody wants it and they need to look at the soil. They needed to accept the things he'd said first before he could kind of move on to this other parable. But with the apostles, he knows they're already there with him. He explains the parable of the weeds, and then he tells them another parable. I wonder, in a sense, if the parable he's about to tell requires a prereq. Right? Those of you who've been in college, you know a prereq. It's something that's required that you have to take before you're ready to take this other class. And I wonder if the prereq isn't Jesus himself. See, the apostles have been hanging out with Jesus, but the crowds only know him from a distance. But I wonder if what Jesus is about to tell them requires that they have some understanding of him as a person, to be able to accept sort of the radical nature of what he's going to share. I don't know, for sure, but these are the questions that I ask. Why wait to tell this parable just to them? Why tell it in a parable? Why not just speak plainly, as he said he does? These are the things that I speculate about. So now, with that wind up, let's take a look at a parable. It's possible you've heard before. It may not even feel very radical to you. It might feel pretty obvious. Let's take a look. So as the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, when a man found, when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So we have these two parables. Clearly there's a similar thing there, right? In one of them you have a man, he's working in a field, and he finds a treasure there. And so he buys, he sells everything he has because the treasure is that great. And he's happy to do it. Notice it says he went with joy and sold all he had. 
not with reluctance, not with duty, not with question. He went with absolute joy, sold everything he had because this treasure was that great. So he got it and he bought the field just to have the treasure. We have a merchant who's actually looking for treasure. The first guy just comes upon it. The second is looking for it. He's looking for pearls. But then he finds a pearl that is so good it changes his whole life. He sells all his other inventory, all his other stock. Anything he had just to buy this one fabulous, amazing pearl. There's a traditional view of these parables. And let me be clear, it's a really good view. There's nothing wrong with the traditional view. It might even be the right view. But I'm actually wondering if it is. But when I say that, I want to be clear. I'm not saying I have any problem with the traditional view. I think it's accurate. I just don't know if it's what Jesus is saying here. But let's start with the traditional view. Let's look at what we've, how we've always understood this. Even when I was growing up, I read a book which was called The Pearl of Great Price, which goes into kind of the detail about this. But here's the way that people have traditionally understood this often, this parable. is that the kingdom of heaven is a great treasure, and Jesus is worth your everything. Again, am I arguing with that? No, I'm not. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is a great treasure. It is worth everything. It is worth selling everything you have. That, that picture of that man who sells everything with joy, that's how we have to see the kingdom of heaven. That to be part of the kingdom of heaven is worth everything. But it's not even really sacrifice. See, this merchant doesn't think he's sacrificing anything. He thinks he's getting a great deal. This guy who gets the field, he doesn't think he's sacrificing anything. He thinks he's getting a great deal, right? They're selling everything because what they see is this beautiful and this important. And again, this is a point that Jesus occasionally makes. He encourages one rich young ruler to do kind of exactly this. He says, sell everything you have and follow me. At other times, he simply states it as a fact. It's interesting to the apostles, he almost never says that. Beyond the first moment when he said, follow me, he never says to them, you need to give up this and give up this and give up that. What he says is, I know you already have. Several times he says this, I know you've given up this and I know you've given up that. And he tells them, whatever you've given up, you will get 10 times, 100 times as much. He encourages them to understand that the treasure is great enough. They lose nothing in the long run. So there's nothing wrong. This may be what Jesus meant to share with the apostles. In fact, there's, uh, I think, one good way to think of this is uh, there's a quote uh, from a very famous missionary named Jim Elliot. He said, a man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Again, a really wise statement. It has a lot of punch because the man who said this literally gave up his life for the mission of the gospel. He was actually killed by some uh, uh, tribe that he was ministering to, sharing the gospel with, and a tribe that was known to be very violent. But he gave it all up to share with them, and this was what he said. And again, he believed it, obviously. It's really true, right? There's nothing foolish in what Jim Elliot did, because what he gained, he can never lose. What he gave up, he couldn't keep anything. So I'm not arguing with the truth of the statement. And when someone like Jim Elliot says it, you think, yeah, I see it, and I see it in his life. So it's all good. But over the last couple of weeks, I began to wonder, what if we missed the point entirely? What if we're reading this exactly wrong? See, while this is true, what if it isn't what this parable is about? And there's a couple of reasons, I think, we might be reading it wrong. 
Now let me rush to say that once I had this new thought, I did look, and I'm not the only person to think of it. I get very nervous if I'm the only person who actually thinks something in scripture because that usually means I'm just wrong. <laughs> so I do want to say, this is not unique to me, but it was unique to me. <laughs> it, was, it was new to me. And it was so encouraging when I began to think this through, but let's, let, let me share with you, let me take you through this journey a little bit about why maybe it's not exactly what we want. Remember, Jesus isn't now talking to the crowd, to people who are yet deciding if Jesus is worth following. If he's speaking to the crowd, this message makes some sense, right? He's saying, no, that it's worth it. The kingdom of heaven is worth giving up everything. It's an exhortation to them that you cannot, that you're no fool if you give up what you cannot keep, the game which you cannot lose. But he's not talking to the crowd. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people who've already made that decision. Right? This is a weird parable to give to people who've already made the decision. For one thing, if they've already made it, they actually understand this. Why do they need a parable? Just speak more plainly to them, as, by the way, he does throughout the Gospels frequently on this topic. He says to them in other places, you are going to lose things. You are going to give up things, and it will be worth it. As we talked about, he already once said to them, everything you've given up, you'll get a hundredfold more. So why this parable if it's already something they get? Of all the people he could talk to, these are the people who, this is preaching to the choir, right? These are the people who least need to hear this message. So, at the very least, he could have said it kind of quickly and simply, what's the purpose of a parable? It doesn't seem like he's having to change their expectations at all. They already have this mindset. Peter says it every day. I give up everything for you, right? Every moment. He's like, me, me, I will give up the most. I will buy more things just so I can give more of them up. Seems to be the way Peter comes at things. So it could be he's just affirming the right choice with the parable, right? It could be he's just saying, them, well, I want to let you know you've done good because you are going to get something of, of great value from it. But here again, does he really need a parable for that? What's the thought-provoking that he's doing there, if that's the point? He's not really challenging the viewpoint. He's affirming it. And maybe that's what's happening. Maybe what he's sharing with them in the parable actually is something they don't yet believe. Maybe it's something they haven't yet grasped, but that he really wants them to understand. People who have already sold everything for the kingdom of heaven, it's a different message for them than the one that we're hearing. So before we make this journey, before I show you another way to look at it and why I think it makes sense in the context of Matthew 13, before I do that, I just want to remind you to empty your cup, as we talked about a few weeks ago. I want to remind you that it may be, now some of you may be way ahead of me, that's okay, just, just go with me and don't spoil for the person next to you. But if you're not, if you're not way ahead of me, empty your cup. Be prepared not to believe what I tell you, but to entertain the possibility. Just be prepared for a moment to say, maybe there's something radical, even more radical. As radical as the idea of selling everything for a treasure that is great, Honestly, that's not that bad, right? I mean, we would all do that. Let's be honest. If I said to you, you can keep everything you currently own, or you can have a billion dollars a month, how many of you would find it radical to give up everything you currently own? <laughs> that's really the message here. The guy who buys the field, the merchant who finds the pearl, neither of them feel like they're trapped or forced to sacrifice. They are joyful about the incredible good fortune that comes. So, so that's not so radical. So I think there's more radical story here. So just be willing for a moment to entertain the possibility there may be. 
Second thing is, yeah, don't hear me saying this is the only way to understand it. I think it's entirely possible this is what Jesus meant. And if it is, take that. That's a great message too. All right? But I want to give you something else to think about. Entertain the possibility there's something even bigger than this. Something even more radical than this. Something, in fact, that I think Jamelli believed was led to this. And the way I want to do this is I want to look at the parables we've looked at so far. And here's the reason I want to do it. It'll be a good review of where we've been, but here's what I want you to see. So there is a certain school of thought out there, which I do not share, so I want to, I want to clarify this for a second. There's a school of thought out there that says that all symbols and prophecies and parables and stories are always the same. There are people who tell you, for example, yeast is always bad, and, and birds are always bad. And, and that, that you, that's how you should read the Bible, by taking the same symbol that Ezekiel's used and applying it to Isaiah and applying it to... I don't agree with that. It actually doesn't seem to bear out just in the plain text. Secondly, it takes no account of the fact that people are different in different times and different cultures, and so symbols have to have different meanings inherently to the cultures they were in. That is not what I'm saying today. But I do think it's interesting that the parables that Jesus has used up till now all have an amazing consistency. And I want to walk through that consistency because I want you to entertain the possibility that he uses the symbols he uses in the first three parables and doesn't suddenly shift them in this one. That in fact they are the same symbols for the same things that they have been all day as he's been preaching. I'm not saying it has to be this way, but it makes a certain sort of sense. How many of you would be confused if I started a sermon and at the beginning of the sermon I used mustard seed as a symbol of something small but powerful and at the end of the sermon, I use mustard seed as a symbol of something poisonous and disgusting, because that's what it really is. How many of you would be confused by that? Yes, and Jesus knows that. So I don't think he's going to switch symbols in the middle with his apostles, right? So if that's the case, let's just, let's just do a little experiment, and let's review, and let's take a look at the parables we've learned over the last few weeks. So the first parable is the parable of the sower. So as you remember the story, the parable of the sower, this man goes out, he sows some seed along the ground, and we find out that some of the seed falls in different points of soil. Some of it's rocky, some of it's weedy, some of it uh, goes in but doesn't go deep, and then some of it goes deep and produces fruit a hundredfold. And so let's review a couple of elements in the parable that we know. Number one, who's the primary actor? Who's the main human, if you will, in the story? The sower. Correct. So that's the person we see who's kind of the main actor. He initiates everything, he does everything, right? Everything flows from his activity. He's, he's frankly, in this story, the only human in reality, right? He's the sower. Are there any other people or actors in this story? There are not, in fact. This one has no other human beings in it. What other elements are there in the story? Seed and? Ground. And the soil. The seed and the ground, right? The seed and the soil. Oh, there are some birds, there are some thorns, that's true. So we've got a few other elements that are in there as well. All right, well, it's interesting. In this parable, we don't have to guess. Jesus actually tells us what's what in this story. So the first thing is, now I have to say, he doesn't say this directly, but it seems very clear and very strong in the context. The sower in this story is Jesus. He's the one sowing the seeds, right? And that the seed itself is the message. And we know this because Jesus says so. He says the seed is the message of the kingdom. 
And then he says the soil and the ground represents the people and their responses. So we have the sower, who is Jesus or God. We have the seed, which is the message. And then we have the soil, which is the people and how they respond to the message. All right? That's just a little review. That's what we saw. Does that mean every time anybody in the Bible tells a story about sowers that it's always going to be Jesus? No. But it just so happens, let's take a look at the next parable. So in the next parable, who, there are a few more people in this, but who's the main actor? Who starts off the whole story? Again, it's the sower. We're told that a man sows seed in his field, right? And then what happens, and then in this case, there are other people and actors. There's an enemy who also comes and sows in the field. And then there's these servants who are more mysterious than they appear to be. But there are these servants who come to Jesus and say, what, or come to the sower, pardon me, and say, what should we do with the weeds and the wheat? He says, don't do anything with them. And then he says, the harvesters, which is the only other groups of people in here, will come and get them later. But the primary actor in all this is the guy who sows in the field. He's the guy who makes the decisions. He's the guy who plants the seeds to begin with. And he's the one who instructs the servants what to do and instructs the harvesters what to do. <laughs> the other elements are, you do have the enemies or the servants, whoever those are. And then you have the weed, and you have the weed. The weeds and the weed, right? And once again, Jesus explains all these to us. So actually, Jesus says flat out, in this case, we don't have to guess, that the sower is the Son of God. That's what he says. It's Jesus is the sower in this case. He is the one. He says the enemy is the devil. And interestingly enough, when he explains the parable, the one element he leaves out and doesn't talk about it at all is the servants. The servants who come to Jesus and ask, should we meet them or not? And there's a reason for this, I think. I think the reason he doesn't talk about the servants is because they don't represent anything. They are simply a placeholder and a way to make the story make sense. Somebody has to come to the Son of God and say, should we weed the plants? So that he can then say, don't weed them. But it's not clear who they are because they're not actually exactly us, even though that is part of the message we're supposed to get from it. Because who are we in this story? We're the weeds, right? Or we're the weeds. Hopefully we're the weeds. Right? And so he tells us that. The weeds are the people of the enemy, and the weeds are the people of God. So we've got the sower, and then we've got the plants that grow up. Just hold this. Because we have another parable. We have a parable of the mustard seeds. Alright? Who's the main human in the parable of the mustard seed? It's the only human. Anybody know? He's the sower. Trying to do death. The main human in the parable of the mustard seed, it says at the beginning, a man planted a mustard seed in the garden. There's the other, there's the parallel story, which is a woman who puts yeast in bread. So you've got the man who plants seed and the woman who puts yeast in bread. Actually, I didn't mention this last week, but I was thinking about this this week, how fascinating it is that Jesus tells two parables here that mean the same thing, and I think there's a reason. In all his discussion about how God likes to work through the small and the despised, isn't it interesting that all the other parables only use a man as the primary character, but in this one parable, he gives a corresponding parable where a woman is just as important? I think that's just sort of an interesting thing. So I think he wants to relate to the men and the women, because the, the, the men are going to be the ones more likely working in the field, the women are going to be the ones more likely making the bread. So he shows them how they both can be represented by whoever this person is. So we've got this sower, or this bread maker, if you want. And what are the other elements? Well, there's the mustard seed. He sows seed, and then the last element is there's the plant, which is the mustard plant, which takes over the whole garden. And here again, we don't have to guess who these are. Jesus explains very clearly who these are. He says that the sower is Jesus. 
God is the sower. He is the guy. Represented by a man in one parable, represented by a woman in another parable. The seed is the mustard seed. Again, the seed is the message. Actually, that seems to be the case. He doesn't explain this parable, but it seems to be the seed here again is the message. It's transferred from plant to plant to plant. And the plant, the mustard tree, is the kingdom, which is represented by the people. Right? So what's interesting is in all three of these stories, so far, we actually have very similar symbols. Again, I'm not building a theology just on that coincidental similarity. But if I look at somebody who's communicating all day, and they've told three parables about a farmer, and they tell a fourth one about a farmer, it's reasonable to think they might have some sort of similarity and connection. Does that seem reasonable to you all? Does to me as well. They've consistently been in the first three parables that the sower is Jesus. So far, in each parable, just to break it down for you, the main actor, usually, but not always, there's the woman of the yeast, but the main actor, usually a sower in the field, is Jesus. Each of these parables actually began with Jesus sowing the message, or the seed. And the message is the seed which is sown. And the result of the seed which is sown, the fruit which is produced, is us. In each story. I, it's really amazing to me even that these different stories are actually saying such similar things. Now there's different points in each of these, right? The first one is that, yes, the seed is the people, but how you respond can affect up the fruit that is developed, right? And uh, in the parable of the weeds and the wheat, the story is that within this field it's going to be a mixture of people who want to be there and people who don't, and don't pull them up. And then in the third story, it's about the power of this tiny little seed sown by God that becomes this huge kingdom, which is us. But in each case, you've got the sower, who's the main actor, you've got the seed, which is the message, and you've got the fruit, which is us, you and me. So bring that in mind, consider the parable of the treasure. Empty your cup and pretend you've never heard anybody explain what this parable is about. Pretend this is the first time you've heard it. You're sitting with the apostles. You have just come inside from the heat. You have just come inside from the large crowd. And Jesus says, and you say to Jesus, explain to us the parable of the weeds. And he does. So you now know, again, you've had more confirmation of the way God is using these symbols today. And then Jesus says, you know, let me tell you another one. And he tells you this parable. And you ask yourself, who's the main actor in this story? Well, it's interesting, he doesn't call him a sower. But let's talk about this a second. What is the only explanation, and I was thinking about this too, there's one thing weird about this story, weird to us, but when you think about it, not weird to the apostles. One of the things that's weird about this story is, how does a guy find a treasure in a field that doesn't already belong to him? Do you notice that? He finds treasure in a field, and the implication is hidden. Well, that's not the implication. That is the explicit state. The implication is buried, I think, right? How do you find a treasure in a field that isn't yours? And we know it's not his. Why? Because he sells everything to buy a field. So is he just lurking on somebody else's field? That's weird, right? Because <laughs> suddenly feels really dishonest. It's like he's just going around other people's fields, digging up, digging holes, looking for treasure. But it doesn't read that way. It reads like it's a surprise that he finds the treasure. You know what? It makes perfect sense to them in their culture, and you know why? Think about the story of the wheat and the wheat. The guy who owns the field isn't always the guy working the field. 
So what we have is we have the sower is working with the He's a sower. He's planting. He's digging. He's breaking up the ground. And in the process of doing that, he finds Blackbeard's treasure. That'd be really weird if Blackbeard's treasure was in Israel. But who knows? He finds something. Oh, God, a treasure. But he finds this treasure, and he realizes what he's found. It's a side note that he's honest enough he doesn't just take it. <laughs> he goes and sells everything he has so he can buy the field. So all that tells us he's a farmer, right? He's a seller. That's the obvious. I think to them, they wouldn't have had to walk through what we just did. It's just weird to us. But for them, when he says there's a guy who finds something in the field, they're thinking, oh, it's obvious. And then he had to sell it. He didn't buy the field. What's well, obviously the guy works in the field? So once again, the main actor in this story is the sower. Hold that thought. Okay? The interesting thing in this story, there's actually no seed. You, I don't want, I'm not going to make a symbol that doesn't exist. There's no seed. Why? Because there's no plant in this story. We know that he is, we know that he's working the field, and so presumably he's sowing seed, but that's not the point. The point isn't what he grows here. It's what he finds. And it's an unexpected treasure, isn't it? Literally, an unexpected treasure. Something which changes everything, which makes the seed and the plant irrelevant. He doesn't care what the field is planting anymore, right? He doesn't care what his work is supposed to be. Everything he was doing, his whole life has become disrupted in this beautiful, incredible way because he found this incredible treasure. And there's one way to think of that treasure, and that's to think of it as the fruit of the field, right? Here's a guy, he's in the field, and he does find this fruit. He does find something in the field, but it's not a fruit. It's not a tree, it's not a plant, but it's something much greater than expected. But here's the thing. If this parable is telling us that Jesus, again, is the sower, because he always has been, and if it's telling us that the treasure is this incredible fruit that Jesus found, what does that mean? What does this parable actually say? Because if, if, if we're not the sower, which is what we assume when we read this, right? A man finds a treasure. That's us. We find the kingdom of great price. The kingdom, let me just confuse all my metaphors here. We find the treasure or the pearl of great price or the kingdom of God. We find this incredible thing and we sell everything we have to get it. That all is contingent on the idea that we are the main actor in this story. But we haven't been in any parable so far. So just for a moment, let's pretend, let's see what happens. What if Jesus is the main actor? What has always been the fruit of the field? Us. What if what Jesus was trying to communicate to the apostles was not, hey, you need to sell everything because the kingdom of heaven is worth it. What if they already knew that? But what if he wanted to communicate to them was, did you know that I have been looking for you? And that I sold everything I have for you? What if we are the pearl of great price? Pearl of great price is a book which talks about Jesus as the pearl of great price, and why not? But what if what Jesus meant was something more radical? What if he's actually saying to his apostles, so far today, I've compared humanity to weeds. Fair enough. Sometimes you are. I've compared you to a despised and tiny mustard seed. Fair enough. You really are. I've compared you to 
to plants that don't grow, that don't get anywhere, because you don't listen with ears that don't hear. Fair enough. So you are. But guess what else you are? To God, to Jesus, you are the pearl of great price. You are the treasure for which he sells everything. Because he's that delighted in you. Think of this parable from that perspective. If we are the treasure in the field, read it again. Listen to the richness of it. Listen to the beauty of it. Imagine this is how Jesus actually perceives you. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And initially you might hear that, and you might think, that's, that's a bit much. Isn't that exactly what the gospel says? See, this is the other reason I think we might have missed the point, is because while it's true that the message could be that the kingdom of heaven is worth everything we have, it is never true that you enter the kingdom of heaven by selling everything you have. Do you understand the difference? We have never been told that the only way we get to the kingdom of heaven is by sacrificing all that there is. We have never been told that it is our cost that is paid to enter the kingdom of heaven. We have been told strangely, mysteriously, radically, that the great price which has been paid for us to enter the kingdom of heaven has been paid by Jesus. And isn't that what this parable says? That he found a treasure, and he was willing, not only willing, but delighted, eager, joyful, gleeful. Think of that man who finds a treasure and is dancing. He's so happy. He's so excited. He's willing to give up everything, because that's the joy he feels about the treasure he found. And could it not be that Jesus is trying to radically prepare the apostles to understand? Because remember, they refused. Every time he brings up that he's here to sacrifice for them, how do they respond? No. <laughs> right? Do you see that? I can see why he tells this parable in this way. Because when he says it plainly, they go, nope. <laughs> that feels way wrong, God. That feels way wrong, son of man. Jesus very plainly says to them many times, many times, surprising number of times, I am going to die. Peter, on more than one occasion, says, no, you're not. Stop talking like that. And Jesus says to him, you're getting in my way. I want to sell everything I have because you are worth it to me. Don't stand in my way. See, they couldn't grasp it. It was too radical. It was too much. It was too big. So Jesus comes out with this parable. He says, can you imagine how you would feel? You don't understand why I would want to give up everything. You can't possibly imagine that I would allow myself to be crucified, allow myself to be killed, that I would die. You've got to see it the way I see it. And the way I see it, says Jesus, is that I do it with joy. Because you are that precious That is a radical message. That 
is a message powerful enough to lead someone like Jim Elliot to say, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, have what he cannot lose. What did he really mean by that? Did he mean an eternal mansion? No, I think he meant the love of Jesus. I think he meant that's what drove him. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Jesus says, I've been looking for you. And they think of their own experience, and, and their experience was different from almost any other rabbinical disciple on the planet at the time. What typically happened is the disciples would go to rabbis, and they would have to basically interview and prove their words to the rabbi. If there was a rabbi who's teaching they liked, they would go to the rabbi, they would say, I want to learn from you, and the rabbi would say, I don't know. Are you good enough? Are you smart enough? Are you dedicated enough? Are you committed enough? Are you disciplined enough? This is how Saul approached it when he found the rabbi he served under. Are you smart enough? Prove it to me. And you earn your way in. You choose the rabbi. Jesus was the weirdest rabbi because as he went around, he didn't. people who tried to choose him, he kept pushing away. Do you see that? A lot of times people would be like, come with me, and he'd be like, well, go sell everything. But the apostles he went to, he found them. And he grabbed them and said, I've been looking for you, I found you, it's my joy to give it all up for you. Don't get in my way. This would be a problem as a message if this parable was all I hinged this on, of course. Because I don't know for sure, because Jesus doesn't explain because there's something in us that feels so right about seeing it as a parable where we're the merchant and the kingdom of heaven is the pearl. Because it is true that it is worth everything. But I do think it is so important that scripture continually tells us you don't buy your way. You don't even find the kingdom of heaven on purpose or on accident. Jesus found. Just to give you some other examples, some other verses about that. He says, for, for example, in Hebrews, it says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, right? Here's an expectation. Give everything. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Focus on Jesus. He is worth everything. But notice why the author of Hebrews says that. From the joy set before him, he endured the cross. See, that's like that guy who sells everything he has for the joy of the treasure. There is no joy in the cross itself. It's clear. The cross itself is pain and suffering and sorrow. Jesus did not become more God's favorite. Whatever weird, confused ideas we have of the Trinity, that cannot be one of them. <laughs> Jesus did not earn a better place of righteousness before God because of being at the cross. The only thing that changes by Jesus being on the cross is he gets his treasure. It's me. It's me. It is the weirdest thing. I once heard Pastor say it this way. It's kind of one of those provocative phrases, but it's really true. He said, when you think about it, what we learn is that Jesus would rather die than live without you. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. And when he went to the cross, as he 
wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane, the reason he persisted through is for the joy set before him. I have to say to you, there's a, there's a message out there which is not false, but I want to show you how it encourages and affirms what I'm saying, not disputes it. Sometimes it's problems and arguments. People will say, we preach the gospel in ways which make it sound like it's all about us. Again, it's not all about us. It's about Jesus. But here's the thing. Sometimes people say the joy set before Jesus is the glorifying of himself. He died on the cross to glorify himself. He, he presented the gospel to glorify himself. He saves us to glorify himself. You know what? That's all true. But what is glorious about it is that it reveals himself to be a God who loves us. It is his love that is glorious. It is the fact that he delights in us that is glorious. That's what makes him different from every other God anybody has ever created ever. You see that? It is to Jesus' glory that he does it for us. They're not in conflict. The fact that Jesus does things for his glory and for loving us both are true exactly the same, because they really are the same. Because that is what is glorious about him. That he is a man who thinks you're a traitor. Look, I know you don't think you're a traitor, and I don't think I'm a traitor. Sometimes you don't think I'm a traitor, and sometimes I don't think you're a traitor. All of that's true. But Jesus thinks you're a traitor. Jesus is never wrong. Here's another one. I bring this up because sometimes you get weird ideas about the Trinity and we think, well, Jesus is the good God and he's the one who loves us and God is like the angry one and Jesus has to stay in between us and protect us from the angels of God. <laughs> Believe me, I heard it. It is Jesus who says of the Father, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That is that's too soft a translation in my opinion. It really should be read something like this. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen with great eagerness to give you the key. How about this? You've all seen this, but have you read the whole thing? I hope so. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, we do not recognize Jesus coming to earth was not a vacation. It was a selling of everything he had. I'm not even talking about his death. Before he even gets to his death, can you imagine? You can't. That's the problem. Neither can I. But can you begin to scratch the surface of imagining what it would be like for a transcendent, eternal, infinite God who has never known pain or discipline or weariness or tiredness, who has never been restricted by time and space? Can you imagine what it would be like to say, I'm going to choose to become a baby? and live an embarrassingly vulgar human life for 33 years? You don't have to imagine because scripture actually tells us. It says, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I want you to think about that phrase for a second. 
Is there anything wrong with God using his equality with God to his own advantage? Do you use your humanness to your advantage when you're dealing with your dog? Of course you do. Of course you do. And nobody thinks it's wrong, do they? Of course not. That's what you do. That's what we do. God chose not to use it to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. What did he give up for the treasure, for the field, for the pearl? Everything. He made himself nothing. For God to go to nothing is going from what? Everything. Taking the very nature of a servant. There's so many other ways he could have done this in our perspective. He could have at least been king of the world. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's a lot of wrestling. I think it's all good wrestling. There's a lot of wrestling among Christians today, I think, with the whole idea even of Jesus dying on the cross. Do you know what's going to happen? Did it have to happen? Did, you know, why did it happen? And, and, and how weird it is some people think that he would do it willingly or that God would even do it willingly with his son. I, I get the questions. The wrestling is good. But I will say this. What you lose when you come to the idea that Jesus died on accident or out of his control, what you lose is the idea of our God delighting, choosing to give everything up for you. That is an infinite loss. Because that is the message of this parable. That is the message of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is true and life a man who found a treasure in a field decided to give everything up in order to have that treasure back is about you. I think it's an amazing message. I wish that I, I, David at one point in his psalms he says, you know, I I, I Sorry, I was going to quote the wrong psalm with the opposite message of what I want to say, so I won't do that. David, at another point in one of his psalms, says something along the lines of just stuttering over his own words, not having the ability to speak of the depth of the beauty of what God has. Now, I feel that way this evening. Not because I feel, sometimes I mean because I feel inadequate. Tonight, I just feel like the message is too big. It's too powerful. That's why I got to use the parable. Because I think if he had just simply said to them, again, I'm going to give everything up for you, they would have just started arguing. Instead, he tells this parable, and for a moment, they're probably the same way. They're like, yeah, King of Heaven is worth all that. Why is he telling us that? But along the way, maybe somebody went, wait, wait a minute. What's he really saying? Who's he really talking about? We lack the capacity. speak of the depth and the breadth of God's love because it's too far beyond us. Yet, as far beyond us as it is, the great weight of it's all been directed by bringing you home, buying that field, claiming you as his own, 
that is what you will have this life. That is why you lose nothing. You gain everything. To get there, the one who had everything had to gain nothing. Had to lose it all for you. So these are the things we've seen. Everyone is wanted in the kingdom of heaven. Boy, we see that more poignantly now, right? Are they, are they ever? So much so they're that treasure that delight. Everyone is wanted, but not everyone wants it. How crazy is that? It's as if the treasure that the man found didn't want to. It's like, no. I want to stay in the field. Reading is not your job. If Jesus was willing, you do have to remember this. I pray and hope that you understand for yourself, increasingly so, how much the Lord delights in you, and how much he loves you, and how much he enjoys you, and how much he just thinks you're awesome to hang out with, and how much he gave up so that he can have that relationship with you. I pray you will begin to see that. But I also have to remind you, if you're going to begin to accept it for yourself, guess what? It also applies to those people around you you don't like. And if Jesus delights in them, who are you to lead them out of the garden? I actually think probably we tend to weed most when we're not convinced about it. When we feel like we have to prop up our own sense of worthiness by making sure other people who don't light up to our standard of self-righteousness are pushed out of the garden. But the more we recognize that Jesus delights in us, in you, in me, I think the less concerned we are about meeting out that other person. It so much stems from this. God loves to work through the small things. Isn't it interesting even in this story that one of the things that is so valuable is a pearl? More valuable than a field. A field's big, traders small. Right? He found one inside the other, hidden inside the other, small enough to be hidden. He found a pearl. It was so powerful, it made him change everything. It doesn't take away from God's love to acknowledge that it's crazy that he invests so much love and energy and time and everything into something so small. But it's small and precious. Finally, Kingdom of Heaven, the lesson we've learned tonight, the King thinks you are worth everything. It almost sounds black blasphemous even just to say <laughs> That is what this parable says, at least I think so. And it's certainly what Scripture says that way. The King thinks you are Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.